You're listening to. And what is poppin', everybody? It is Thursday, July the 7th, 2022. It is 7-7 day for everybody. Happy 7-7 day. I don't know if it's something. Uh. Is that auspicious? I mean, it's a double number. So uh, my name is Marvin Yu, and joining me to talk about all the good pop kits us through our days, we have professional culture editor Han Win. Hey, Han. Hey, hey. Hey. It's just the two of us today because our co-host Jess is taking a long dessert vacation to celebrate um, her uh, finishing up her tenure at Cape. Um, she is going on another month-long Europe trip, which, you know, it's like her third one since we started this show. I feel way behind. <laughs> <laughs> this is the other thing about like being home all the time, but also being the sole pet owner. Like mm. I don't have anyone to like back up for me. So <laughs> I, I, yeah. Pre, pre-pandemic, I had like uh, a thing in place, but um, it was from travelers all around the world. And so now I'm just like, oh, I don't know if I trust that yet. So Those fur babies chaining you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll figure it out soon. But like at, at, at this point, like things, Omicron's still raging. I'm okay. There's with, like, a maybe... new, was a BA4 or some sort of like new variant yeah. that's dominant now. It's, I mean, I feel like everyone I know has been like catching covid lately um, yeah and if they haven't they've been catching something else that's been pretty ravaging so maybe it's not showing up as covid but they're still getting really sick like several days sick <laughs> and like out of commission so i think people are saying it's not a matter of if you get covid these days it's when you get covid because when and how bad yeah like, because hopefully with all of our boosters and i'm going to get another booster hopefully um it will be more reduced but still is people still are getting like out of commission for two to three days at least i know someone who just caught it last weekend and they got knocked out it wasn't like life-threatening but they felt like shit for like a whole weekend fortunately my mom who got it felt fine (laughs) she was she was raging at me she's like ah the doctor told me to stay home for five days and i was just like i haven't really been leaving like my big thing (laughs) was was jaunting to the sgv to like eat a meal with you too so well i mean the last time you did that we um we both withstood a pretty much point blank burst of covid because we shared dim sum with chess who tested positive right afterwards and you know luckily both of us it didn't break through but now now that i've said that and i did just go to a movie theater to watch the movie we're going to talk about later today which i'm still questioning if it was worth it but we'll get to that (laughs) <laughs> later yes, we, we will get to the movie but yeah i i mean a lot of these movies uh unless it was rrr i tend to actually be far enough away from people that i seem okay but yeah uh <laughs> yeah so we're here this week to talk about the new regency era rom-com it's a rom-com right i think yeah it's a rom-com call it a rom-com yeah. mr malcolm's sure. list um which we first brought up on this show several years ago when it premiered as a short by Refinery29. Um, it got made into a full-length movie, and we watched it, and we have thoughts about it. Uh, but before we get to that, let's find out what pop culture has been getting us through this week. Um, Jess, what is popping? Not Jess. Oh, wait. Ugh. Han. Han. <laughs> Han. What is popping? All right. So to completely cleanse the palate of all the stuff I've been having to deal with at work, um, which is extensive, Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's not been a good year so far. 
Yeah, it hasn't been. But also, like, one of my writers wrote something about toxic fandom. So people found her. And oh, so no. We've been, so we've been, you Which know, toxic like, fandom? Um, Star Wars and Marvel. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so, you mean the toxic fandoms? It's, it's the, like, I'm not going to name names because, you know, they'll find us. So everybody knows what it is. You can look up the story on, on salon.com and, um, and see, but yeah. So, I mean, fortunately it was over the very long weekend, but we still had to be kind of on our guard Mm. and, um, and just be very well aware. We, we have certain social media practices in place, but you know, it's never a, a great thing to have to think about and, um, be like, normally I would tweet the hell out of the story, but you know, Anyway, so to cleanse the mental palate from all of that shit and everything else that's going on in the world, I have been watching a new Netflix reality decor series called How to Build a Sex Room. Is this a real show? It is a real show. It is right now. I watched it on screeners, but at the... um, by I think Friday, um, when you if you listen to this on Friday, then it will have been released on Netflix, so you can watch it. I am curious. Okay, so so the premise is very similar to any other design show where um, we have one central designer. She is a British lady, very charming, very fun, Melanie Rose, and she's an older lady, short cap of like gray hair, uh, colorful glasses, and she always wears like a colorful scarf and fun shoes. So already she's kind of like, you know, an, a, a free spirit, let's say. Um <laughs> And so she has been traditionally, you know, like a very long, long time um, designer for homes. And at one point, someone is like, hey, we want a sex room. And she's like, well, why not? And so now she is a full time sex room designer. Um, And we actually have an interview with her coming up on Salon.com. So again, I'm plugging this. But um, so I've been watching it. And and when I say it feels very, in some ways, very standard, like you have a couple and then she goes to the couple's house and she talks to them and she's like, you're looking wonderful. And then all of a sudden she's like, so I hear you want a sex room. They're like, sure. Um, And then this is where it gets interesting because every couple wants something different. So some couples just want a romantic retreat. It'll look almost like a hotel room or a honeymoon suite, right? And they're they're very low on the kink. So their sex room is more of like um, an escape uh, or a spa even. They'll be like, oh, maybe I just want like a really great bathroom with a, with a super soaker tub. So it'll be very much like a hotel. Other ones are like they want straight up dungeon. Um, they want chains with, you know, uh, hard points that, that they can string people up. They want, um, so you start learning all the vocabulary. <laughs> Here's the funny thing. I was watching the whole thing and I was like, I guess I know all this vocabulary already. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to assume a show called How to Build a Sex Room will have a lot of freaks, but like how freaky did the freaks it, get? It, the, the, the kink, the level, because we don't want to use freak, perhaps, um, but we do, unless you want to call it freaky. Um, but yeah, the kink level does range. And um, and so things like you see a St. Andrew's cross, which is like, you know, the big cross where you can restrain people that okay. is in at least a couple of rooms. Um, there are definitely other restraints there. She she brings out the flogger a lot. Like she has a, her bag of tricks and um 
the point is, you know, besides building a room that people find inviting or at least, you know, something that they like about it, she also tries to introduce them to newer things within their comfort zone. So like one <laughs> He's one couple she makes recommendations if you like this you might also like this uh, other. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you like writing cops, you might like this flogger or cat of nine tails and um and or she'll get them the like the high class version of something or the special tantric chaise lounge, you know, which is really expensive, like really expensive. So I'm sure I don't know of like the homeowners put up some money, but definitely Netflix puts up some money because these are expensive. Um, What I like about it is that it normalizes, of course, the conversation around sex and kink so that it's not like sex shouldn't be dirty. And so it puts it all out in the open. Um, They show uh, a they're very inclusive. So we not only see people of different ethnicities, but we see also different sort of groupings so we um so it's not just gay couples and you know straight cisgender couples but we see also a couple where um one person is either non-binary or trans i don't know i can't couldn't exactly um they're not specified but you know they use they them Mm. um and then there's the family polyamorous family and by polyamorous family i don't mean that they're related to each other they have created their own sort of poly polycule Yeah. (laughs) And um, and it's seven people and they all have their different types of kink. And then some people are like, I just like to cuddle and watch movies. I was like, "Okay." And then the other guy's like, no, I want change and I want to string people up. And the other one's like, I like golden showers. I was like, whoa. So, you know, there's like, (laughs) well, if you like that, then maybe we need to put a drain in this one room and have and have a floor and, and walls that we can clean up. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I think a lot of people will find fascinating. Um, there's definitely some funny things in there. Uh, even there was one couple who like they they're as I don't want to say boring, but as vanilla as <laughs> possible until all of a sudden we realize that the lady has alopecia. And so she's wearing a rig, wig and then they were like, well, what about other wigs? So they talk about role play. And so this is what I mean by like, here's what your comfort zone is. What if we take it one step further and like expand that? Because also wigs probably aren't cheap. So, um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I really yeah. hope people will start talking about it um, and it's, talking more openly about it. Yeah, it sounds like it's a very like, um, it sounds like it's a very inclusive <laughs> type of show talking about something that is still pretty taboo so where does the show take place does does it take place in britain or is in america it's it's all over america so the the actual people tend to be americans um and it's all over so like let's say there's one couple who is actually long distance like one guy is in houston and the other guys i actually don't know where i couldn't figure it out and so they did a long distance thing so they asked for like what we usually do is we watch like we record webcams of each other and we look at photo of each other to like feel closer <laughs> so they got a photo shoot and then she set up a webcam for them so it's kind of like everything's tailored to what their needs and their desires and all that stuff are and probably the most uh relatable thing is one couple actually hasn't been having sex at all because they have three kids things have gotten pretty busy also it turns out like 
the woman has never had an orgasm. The guy doesn't know if she's ever had an orgasm. So I was like, oh, dear. Lord. That's <laughs> not good after three kids. I know. And so I was just like, you know what? They need this. They desperately <laughs> they need, need this. They need to go yeah. on. Yeah. A... They, and they need to talk about it, too. So yeah. that's all very important things. Very fascinating. I, I think it's also it's a kind of a, a real life thing that's not like these stupid dating shows that I think everyone can somehow relate to unless you're not like into sex. Um, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting that you said this takes place in America because the fact that you can build a sex dungeon in your own house, that's all due to privacy laws, which is exactly what's under siege right now by the Supreme Court and all the things that like um, Justice Clarence Thomas says it's like up for debate. And so I don't know, maybe will will this spur some conversations about privacy laws and how to like truly enshrine those and to protect those because, you know, I'm sure a lot of people will be inspired to create their own sex rooms in their house and they, that's yeah. something they have to worry about. Yeah, and I'm I'm happy that my writer asked one question because I was like, very clearly not everyone has this budget, right? <laughs> so I think she asked like, can you do it on an Ikea budget? <laughs> Which I think a lot of people will want to know. So um, I want to see the Ikea hack sex room. I think that'd be... I mean, <laughs> they probably have a ton. Like, I was thinking about it. Uh, I was like, for sure they have these things that that are probably very helpful. They definitely have a lot of hooks. Whether or not they're load-bearing you know, is a different story. Uh, but yeah, so that was that was my sort of fun turn-off-the-brain watch uh, that I very much enjoyed. So, um, so Marvin, what about you? What's popping? All right, so I finally finished Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, the limited series that was playing on Disney+. Plus. Um, last time we checked in, I was four episodes in. Now I've finished the whole thing. And I got to say, I'm coming out of it pretty pretty okay um oh, I, yeah. I, I which i think it's it's a win because Oof. i think more often than not when i'm watching disney plus series especially of their franchises like marvel or star wars that's not the feeling i get when i leave mm. the last episode so um i think what helps is that this is like a continuation of the mainline story and you know as much as we say we wish there was more Star Wars that's not about Skywalkers. Mm-hmm. It's still at its best when it's about Skywalkers <laughs> because that's yeah. what they know how to do, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes. In general, I'm very like over Jedi's, <laughs> in particular, you know, the Skywalkers, I guess, or at least fake Skywalkers, uh, whatever, the, the, the extended family of Skywalkers, just because for me, it's kind of like that legacy. I don't, I don't need another, you know, like a royal family. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm glad to hear that because I have only watched up to episode five. <laughs> so I have not okay. watched the finale. It gives you what you want, which is Obi-Wan versus Vader. And sure. I think that's that's the main reason you come to this. You want to see their confrontation. You want to see basically Obi-Wan meet face to face with his biggest regret and failure and how he becomes motivated by it now storytelling wise it's very it's very star wars it's like there's something deep in there but the show never tries to go after it um i think deborah child definitely is has a better command of what she wants to do when she directs her star wars stuff than like say a john favreau um but i think what's different about this show is in the prequels and even in the mainline series jedi is always put on the pedestal as like 
the ultimate good guys, the ultimate avatars of good light. You know, Star Wars has a very black and white morality. And I think that's its biggest weakness. It's at its most interesting when it goes after the gray, which, you know, some people try to do. But speaking of toxic fandoms, it's what a lot of quote unquote fans don't like is when they go into those gray areas. And I think in this show, you you find Obi-Wan, you find the Jedi in like, a crumbled state, right? They've they've been hoisted by their own petard. They their their arrogance of thinking they can become like space cops and generals have caused their own downfall. And like, you know, you find Obi-Wan in a very low place because the whole point of the prequel series is they played themselves, right? Mm-hmm. They had yeah. they alienated this really powerful, angry emo boy and literally could not see that their president was like an evil little imp, right? A little mm-hmm. troll man. <laughs> Just like pulling the strings. And I think that like rising from the ashes storyline does does play well because you are rooting for Obi Wan. Like Hugh McGregor is like endlessly charismatic. You know, Hayden mm-hmm. Christensen's back, and he, you know he's he's grown as an actor. Um, even though he, you only see him in like one scene where, where he's like digitally de-aged. <laughs> um, but I mean, this was a central relationship throughout the three prequel series, a whole Clone Wars like animated series. And Mm -hmm. this is a relationship people care about. And I think seeing how these two friends turned enemies collide was the draw. And I think the show definitely delivered has cool lightsaber fights. Um, There are still some things that I was kind of not as high on. Like there's a whole plot in the middle where they infiltrate the most secret of empire bases and literally just walk in and like, you know, if you're going to portray an evil fascist empire, there's no way they're like just letting whoever walk into their most secret base. But that's just really nitpicking. I feel like Star Wars, as invested as I still am somehow, does a lot of shortcuts in the storytelling, right? There's a lot of mm-hmm. just things that happen because it needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with you that despite maybe some of my reluctance <laughs> to deal with Skywalkers and something like that. Uh, it's You're right. It is a very central relationship when it comes to Kenobi and uh, Vader or whoever, Anakin. And, <laughs> and, and it's, it's also one that kind of plays out in different iterations over the series. So the franchise. So like even with a father figure like, Kenobi, and then of course the father himself with Luke Skywalker. Just whenever it comes to mentors and people learning, you know, Jedi stuff, Jedi <laughs> fuckery, uh, then I, I think there is something central there, especially when it when it comes to power. So, yeah, um, yeah. And I I, I, I want to see the Kid fight. Leia. I enjoy Kid Leia. She was, you know, what like I. It was weird because. Maybe it was the toxic fandom, you know, there was like that sort of backlash against her, but she made sense to me, you know, like Leia is this ballsy, um, amazing character. Yeah, as a kid, she's going to be a troublemaker, you know, Yeah, and she's going to call out uh, Kenobi, Ben Kenobi for being <laughs> old and kind of slow. You know? So I, I, I thought that was very fun. Um, yeah, I just... Um, one more little nitpick, which is, you know, we made a big deal about um, all like the casting where they had O'Shea Jackson, they had um, Maya Erskine and Kumail Nanjiani. And I kind of wish we got a little bit more. Again, the central story is about Obi-Wan, Leia, and Darth Vader. Yes. But yes. I do wish we got a little bit more character out of, especially Maya Erskine's character. Um, she plays a pilot named Sully, but I'm not getting any Maya Erskine from her. <laughs> She's just there, right? And I'm, right. I spent the whole time wishing she would like 
have more, um, I guess, impact on the story, or at least like make a lasting impression, right? Because you know, no, Kamel did. Like you know, you're right. He he was able to be like yeah. personality. He he recurred. He he was he had a strong he had an arc. And yeah. so I would watch a yeah. Haja spinoff. I would not watch a Sully <laughs> spinoff. Yeah, I, I think that's the the problem when it comes to having three main characters who are straight from the original franchise. <laughs> you kind of have to give them, they suck out all the air, right? Yeah. And so for them to even squeeze in Kamel Nanjiani, that like, we were lucky. And then, you know, we, we got so much of like the Inquisitors, right? Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, but I agree. Like, if you're going to use someone, use them. Otherwise, what's the I know. Point? I mean, halfway through the show, Sun Kang stopped showing up. And I'm like, yeah, Sun Kang, man. I mean, River right. Friend stopped showing up for half the show, too. I feel like there's a lot of good casting there. And I think for them, it's like, oh, it's cool to be a part of a Star Wars. Mm-hmm. But yes. at the same time, man, you know, again, invested in the Skywalker saga, even though I haven't seen Rise of the Skywalker yet. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know if I ever will. Eventually, maybe. Um, but at the same time, you're showing me these new characters. I'm like, I'm kind of interested in what they're doing, but I kind of, um, I'm kind of interested in what they're doing, and I want to know more about the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I maybe I'll finish it <laughs> now that you I should. heard it wasn't awful. <laughs> I think it sticks the landing. Um, I mean, if you're into, I mean, the baseline for a good Star Wars is cool space fights and cool lightsaber fights, and there's definitely some cool lightsaber fights in this show. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Okay, that's what I want. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're talking all about Mr. Malcolm's list. Stick around. Hey, I'm Kim Cooper, and I co-host the podcast Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like. A podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. Every week, we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone, especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. All right, welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. On this episode, we're talking about Mr. Malcolm's List, a period drama directed by Emma Hawley, uh, written by Suzanne Allen, based on her novel of the same name. Um, it is a Regency-era um, romantic comedy starring Frida Pinto, Sophie Dirisu, Oliver Jackson-Cohen, Ashley Park, Zawi Ashton, and Theo James. The script of this film originally appeared on The Blacklist, right? Yeah, The Blacklist. Yeah, originally appeared on The Blacklist, which is um, Franklin Leonard's um, annual list of the best unproduced screenplays. Um, it got developed into a short um, by Refinery29, starring Gemma Chan um, as Miss Thistlewaith. Before it got picked up as a full-length feature, um, stuff happened. Lots of, uh, lots of casting <laughs> announcements and changes. And now it's finally out. Um, the film is about uh, Mr. Malcolm, um, the catch of the season in 1818 London, who spurns Miss Julius Thistlewhite. And when Juliet finds out that he has a list of qualifications for a 
good match, she decides to um, hoist him on his own petard by enlisting the help of her academy friend, um, Selena, played by Frida Pinto, to get back at him. So it is a comedy of... Uh, manners. Manners and schemes. And yeah, um, Han, <laughs> as a fan of this type of um, historical setting, and also someone who's read the book, what did you think of Mr. Malcolm's List? Yeah, so, all right, so we can kind of, like, trace the whole journey of it as far as my feelings about it, too, because I think when the um, short film was made based on the Blacklist script, it was made by Refinery29, and they made, like, 11 minutes of it, and it was a really exciting, um, diverse casting sort of thing, Where and this was pre Bridgerton. Um, and so, yeah, it was super exciting. And I was like, yes, I want to see this. Um, much of the casting stayed very much the same, except for the Gemma Chan role. Um, and so, in the meantime, while the actual full length film was being made and we were watching all the casting things going down, um, I was like, oh, wait, it's a book too. So I decided to read it because I'm very much used to reading these. Uh, uh, Regency romances. And I do have to say, I was a little disappointed in the book. <laughs> so <laughs> that for me actually made me a little bit less excited about the movie because, and and this is the only thing is the book is perfectly fine. The movie is perfectly fine. Um, the and, and I think it's just the story is very simple. And I think there are probably some moments that could have been, I don't know, exaggerated or made funnier or timing wise could have been like sharper but i think that was what my impression was about the novel was when it comes to a regency comedy of manners i wanted something way sharper i mean you not everyone can be austin clearly but i did expect there to be especially from all of the attention this was getting i did expect the story to be a lot more like burn you know like with really excellent lines and there wasn't that so and in fact i found one character very annoying and that character was julia thistlewaite <laughs> and um so when i went back to the short film after reading the book i was like oh that's Gemma chan's character so i was like that makes sense because she actually makes the character more lovable because she's a great actress um, and she's able to make her like, yes, a little bit of an airhead, because I think that's the point is she's not able to answer Mr. Malcolm's very probing questions about politics, the corn laws, especially. She thinks it's about a diet. And um, when you see that on the short film, she kind of makes it lovable that she doesn't know what he's talking about. And so you're able to forgive the scheming that she does and the hurt she feels over this humiliation that he passes over her. And um, so I think the recasting, um, the whole journey of recasting, I was very interested in because when Gemma Chan um, was out, then we thought Constance Wu was going to go in that role. And I was like, Hmm, I don't know if she has quite the softness and lovableness, but I was like, I was willing to see. And then she got replaced. And so now we have Zoe Ashton, um, who is a very 
good actress. I think also fairly comedic, but I don't know if it quite had the same quality. So that was a that's a tough role to play. Is someone who is scheming, uh, sort of self centered, spoiled, um, and yeah. So that was a tough role, and so I don't know how I felt about that. I I I just I felt like I couldn't get behind her, and that was the problem. I think. The, the crux of the problem for me with uh, this film. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely recasting with Zoe Ashton, she played um, Julia as someone who was more hapless. Like when yes. she, I think that's what it is. I think she leaned more into the comedy of it than the mm-hmm. the drama of it, right? Like um, Gemma Chan's mm-hmm. Julia kind of more played it more straight. Like she was trying to figure out what she was trying to, like, like played it a little bit more straight. And I think, you know, I think that's, that's kind of the, I think that was kind of the central thing for me too, which is like I watched that short a bunch of times because I showed it to a lot of mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And that 11 minute short is basically the first 11 minutes of the film, like shot for shot. Mm-hmm. And you can't help but compare the two. And yeah. not to say that it's like who's up, who's a downgrade, but definitely they had different approaches to the character. And I kind of really liked Gemma's approach better than what Zoe did. Uh, and and so I feel bad about that because I do think Zoe's a great actress and she brought something different to it, but it definitely I think changed the whole dynamic of the it's, film. Yeah, it's easier to hate Zoe's version than Gemma's. Right. Version. And you don't right. want and you don't necessarily want that. Like even when you're reading a novel, you're you're trying to find the things in there and you have your imagination. But I think once you see it on the screen, you you're more uh locked into their version of the character. So um so there was that issue I had. I think the other thing is uh Maybe it was just my watching of the film, but I did feel that I didn't get as much of Mr. Malcolm's side uh, this on on screen. So while I think I got a lot of Frida Pinto's Selena and very much um, identified with her and her plight, I almost didn't get the chemistry between them because I don't know if I felt for him as much. Whereas in the short I did. <laughs> so I don't know. I, maybe it was like a difference in timing or, or maybe I was just tired that morning. Cause I did watch it in a, in, on a matinee, but I just didn't get as much from him. So. I mean, in the short, their entire chemistry is just a glance at each other, but I do admit that yeah. they had like good chemistry. And I do feel like that chemistry was a little bit missing um chemistry in general in yeah. the rom-com was kind of lacking i think you know yeah. um i i mean i enjoyed it um i'm glad i watched it as a matinee like yes i'm glad i only paid like seven bucks for that ticket yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. overall i do say it's a very like tight film as far as what it sh- it's it's proposes it to be um i think you get it hits all the beats of a romance yeah. I think they do have good chemistry. That's actually why I think they should have had more conversations. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely is a period rom com. I think in every mm-hmm. sense of the term, it's it's not. Yeah, it's not in Austin, right? It's more Bridgerton no. than Austin. It's more right, just right. like romance and it's about fluffy moments than like the witty satire you know yeah and i think maybe that's what it is is maybe because we've seen a bridgerton by now which actually is a very modern feeling wrong uh regency this one it was still playing by the rules of regency and so um something that the book had which this didn't is that um so the 
I don't want to spoil anything, but there is a a big scene in in which they're sort of thrown together that is changed from the book. And that that scene was kind of over the top for me in the book. Honestly, might have been good in the film because I felt like everyone was a little bit still too starched up. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted yeah, yeah, I feel like maybe this is how you and Jess have ruined me um in terms of these period slash romance stories, but I felt like there wasn't enough horniness. Right, right. Like right, there right. was like I didn't mm-hmm. feel any simmer. It was very fluffy and very like pleasant yes. and sweet, but there was no spice. Right? Yeah. Because even let's say in Emma, that dance was smoking hot. Oh, and, so hot. Yeah. And, you know, Pride and Prejudice, you get like the the hand clench. And so here I was just kind of like, the, the scene I'm telling you that's missing definitely has a lot of heat in it. And so mm. I was just like, why? <laughs> and I was like, is it because of, well, what we know about Frida Printo as far as what Jess said? Right. So context also, before Han and I both watched this film, uh, we watched it separately, but um, Jess had already watched the film. We were supposed to talk about it last week, but then we had our, do we want this? Um she did mention that it was hard for her to ignore the fact that Frida Pinto was totally pregnant during filming. And after she mentioned that, that was all I could see whenever Frida Pinto was on screen. <laughs> yes, I do have to say in general, Regency fashions can help you if you have a little bit of a baby bump because it is an ampere waist, you know, which is basically the uh, the waistline right below the breasts and then sort of like a very long, you know, <laughs> skirt. So you can, there's, it's fairly forgiving. And especially if you, if it's cold outside and you have a very similarly uh, patterned coat, you, you know, it's, Again, like shapeless. And so, however, just because we knew what was going on and just put it in our minds, we were just all kind of watching like how many how many scenes have her holding a coat like next to her in front of her baby bump? How many scenes are just like, you know, shoulders up, you know? Uh, so, yeah. And there wasn't you're right. There isn't a dance scene. There's almost always a dance. I mean, there scene was a dance scene, but it wasn't oh, yeah. sexy. It was just kind of. It was fun, yeah. but it wasn't like it there was, was yeah. no there was no eye fucking. There was no you know no, no, no touching. Yeah. It it yeah, completely right. This is <laughs> this is it was missing the heat, and um, I do have to give a shout out though to some of the comedy, and where the comedy came in, I felt this is also where I was just like, if they didn't give so the Mr. Malcolm's best friend who also happens to be Julia Thistlewaite's cousin. Oh, he was great. So yeah, his his <laughs> character's named Lord Cassidy or Cass. He's played by Oliver Jackson Cohen, who was actually the same guy from the short. And he was fantastic. He was very sullen and very, you know, like whiny. And they kept joking about him, like wearing women's clothing and whatever it is. Maybe he's supposed to be coded as gay. I don't know. It didn't matter because whatever it was, he also ended up, being this sort of the smartest of them all. Um, um, I understand his discovery of Rose because I just discovered her bathrobes like a month ago. And I was like, <laughs> yes. this has been missing my entire life. <laughs> That's fascinating. Okay, we will have a robe conversation <laughs> right here. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I'm still looking for an everyday robe, but mm, that, yeah, I just yeah. have a bathrobe. I'm like um, literally I, searching up like spa wholesalers <laughs> who sell robes. Like, can they just buy one that I yes. can wear at home? Yeah. 
Um, uh-huh. The other, let's see, I will lead up to the best person, but I think Theo James also was very fun. He plays the sort of like... He's the captain, right? Yeah, he's Captain Henry Ossery. And Theo James, of course, for those people who watch Sanditon, he was in the <laughs> first season. So he's already played a Regency hunk. But instead of being all angsty as he was in Sanditon, he's actually very jovial and like has a jaunty mustache. And so that was very fun to see him. I feel um, like he was the only one in that film who got the message like you gotta smolder a little bit you gotta like yeah he smoldered throw those a little. glances you know he was fun yeah there was he he was bringing it you know uh and then the the last person i have to say who brought a lot of humor <laughs> like i was just dying because this character couldn't it's not come up is it yes yes i I, thought, I don't know if i like that character. well here's the thing i actually her character in some ways is very classically austin in that there's always a character i find incredibly annoying so maybe you also found her annoying but so she's one of those incredibly characters annoying. yeah so she's one of those characters who um who speaks too much talks too much, talks a lot about herself, is very airheaded, and is kind of like not be able to read the room. And so there's almost always a character like that in Austin who's just silly, completely um, like flipper to gibbet. And the reason why I think I found her funny was since we know what she's like normally, I actually just really delighted in the fact that she went for it like she brought so much energy to the screen when she was on that i was just like okay you know and it it showed everyone else to be kind of duds that's true when she appeared it was just like it was just like a ball of chaos in like this very yeah yeah otherwise very kind of boring scene yeah, yeah. And so that's why I was like, you know, I enjoyed Theo James. I th- enjoyed Ashley Park. I, I think, yeah, besides the heat, I didn't feel a lot of the comedy in the main, some of the main, like the main trio, perhaps. It was all the butler. Uh, it was all the footmen. Yeah. He was, yeah. He was in the short also. I just recognized yeah, him. Yeah. I mean, uh, his entire role is just to roll his eyes and like make like <laughs> My favorite comment is when um, they're having this like intense political discussion about how the church should use its funds to like to support the poor instead of building like a, a new church, and then the the footman goes, or you can just pay us more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so there there are definitely some nice parts. I think it's one of those movies where if you just are dying for a little bit of something between Bridgertons, then uh, see a matinee. Enjoy it. Uh, know it's going to be a gentle comedy, not very smoldering. I still think it's really good for what it is. Um, yeah. I just, yeah. I think I just wanted a <laughs> little bit more. Same with what I wanted from the book. And so for that, I do have to say it is faithful to the source mm. material. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. It's a two-hour movie. And I feel like a good half hour could have been cut out and it would have oh, been yeah. stronger. So oh, yeah. The last half hour is actually really the strongest part of the film. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the rom-com part after the the breakup and mm-hmm. the, the angsty part. I think maybe that's when everyone decided, oh, we need to act more now, right? <laughs> um, because that's when everyone starts getting like, more like emo and angry mm-hmm. and more like indignant. And, you know, that's when Julia finally shows remorse for her scheming. I do feel like towards the end of the film, all the actors start bringing like their A game to, yeah. to the drama, which which I kind of wish was true throughout. And I think could have been fixed by, you know, maybe removing a third of the movie, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, honestly... Either that or use that time and inject some like 
we needed I think we needed someone to come in and punch it up. Punch up the yeah. script. Yeah. So yeah. if you're gonna have that extra time, use it wisely. <laughs> um, um this was clearly not much of an atmosphere film, so we needed like dialogue, I think. Yeah, and I do agree with you that we didn't get as much Mr. Malcolm as we probably we might we probably we probably could have. And I mean, on that note too, I just didn't like him. Yeah, I see. That's what I mean is I think if they gave him more screen time to make you care about him, because I honestly like I found him more compelling in the short. Yeah, I mean, and it's the same actor. (laughs) And maybe and maybe it's because he reminds me of my friends who are like that, who like, right, you know, has this list of impossible qualifications they want their partners to have and fixate on like the one flaw that they see, Yeah, Uh, which I guess, you know. Makes this movie kind of contemporary in a way. You know, a lot of people are like this. Um, But at the same time, I think, you know, having him just be like a closed off kind of petty dude um, throughout most Mm -hmm. of the film, especially towards Julia. And, you know, I think the the inciting incident of the film is him like kind of writing Julia off because she couldn't engage with him on a complicated subject. And that's juxtaposed with like Captain Henry... um, really kindly explaining to her something that she, when she says she doesn't understand like in the middle of the film. And I think it's like, I get what you're trying to do here. And he's being portrayed as like this super good looking catch, but like, he's also kind of a jerk. Right. But I think yeah, that's oh, kind of par for the course for like these, yeah, like a, the, like a Regency era hero. Right? Yeah. All Regency like romances, supposedly each of the main characters have a really big flaw that's making them hold back. And so they need to not necessarily overcome it, but actually acknowledge it and work on it. And so that's why we get these titles like Pride and Prejudice, because you're like, oh, that's which one is the pride and which one is the (laughs) prejudice, right? So his is like that he has like this big wall up. And, you know, they do work on that. But I think um, what could have helped was throughout the sort of, let's say, courtship, if he kept stumbling in some way, like where it was things were pointed out to him in such a way that he kept having to change his mind or whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, it didn't feel like until much later did he realize that maybe he had a problem. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I feel like during his, you know, first initial courtship of Selena, you did see moments of that, right? Him kind of coming up against, okay, he's compromising his own like list to be with her because he like finds himself attracted to her. Yeah, I wish you no. Know, there's there's a couple of really good moments throughout his initial courtship of um, Selena, where he you find himself wrestling with the fact that now he likes the girl, and now he doesn't know what the hell to do. He kind of becomes an idiot when he's yeah. like actually chasing um, Selena. Yeah, he's pursuing versus being the one who's pursued, and um, it kind of excites him, but also he doesn't know what to do with his hands. Basically, <laughs> you know, like what, what does this mean? Um, I think. Uh, and, and and if I'm trying to figure out, let's say, what her flaw is besides saying yes to this hor- horrible harebrained scheme, um, because basically she's supposed to make him fall in love with her and then she'll whip out her ridiculous list and say, sorry, you don't meet qualifications. It's a bad plan to begin with. I mean, it's a horrible Julia plan. is not a good schemer. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible plan. And the thing is, I think maybe sh- they could have played up the maybe her her loyalty to her friend more like maybe 
explain why yeah. she would go along with this. Because I do understand that she has no prospects for herself. They do show that she's fended off a very old and lecherous suitor at some point. But we also, and you know, she she is under, she's living through circumstances where she possibly will be unmarried because she was uh, a, a lady's companion. So she's poor. Um, so we understand the social circumstances of her wanting to hang out with her friend. But why she would go along with the scheme is the thing that I was just like, I don't know how I feel about this. Um, because I even mean, even Julia's not that convincing to me, like in the in the scene where she's saying like what's happening. So um, Yeah, I feel like it's just another case of us thinking too hard about a rom com. Yeah, there, there's that too. But but I think the reason that we do that is because if things aren't, we're not quite latching onto it, we're wondering why. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I, yeah, I read, I've been reading this rom-com series and some of them, they're all ridiculous. Um, but some of them work better than the others. And I was trying to figure out, well, why is this utterly ridiculous one do I like? And the other one that's ridiculous, I don't like. <laughs> so I think that's where it kind of boils down to where it's like, I want more of the thing I like. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it all boils down to if this was like uh, just a garden variety rom-com on like the Hallmark Channel or or, um, or Lifetime, I think it would have done, I think, I think it would have done great, and I think it still will. I think it, this will do really well on streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once more people will be, will be able to watch it. Um, I think you know it's it's a fun costume period piece. Um, but as a period, but as like a like a period romance, like as a period romance, like as like a period romance film, like genre wise, it doesn't. It just doesn't hit what you wanted to do. Like when you when we. Like, and maybe it's just, again, maybe I've been ruined because these are the types of <laughs> expectations I have after, you know, watching a Bridgerton and watching an Emma and watching, you know, like the more, I guess, hot, yeah, um, you- hot um, shows. Um, that's what kind of what I expect is like, it's about like the whole point you said a romance in a Regency era is because they're so restrained, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like. You know, yeah. all these people are young. They're like in their early 20s, early to mid 20s. Unbelievable. Like the whole point is let's put all these unbelievably, unbelievably hot, horny people together, but tell them they can't touch. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Or if you touch like even a hand, that means like a lot. Yeah. And you're married so, now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And th- you're right. That is where the tension is. And to put stakes like marriage on that and, you know, for society to say that, basically like love doesn't matter but we're gunning for these people to fall in love that's another tension so there are all these layered tensions um inherent in the regency sort of romance story and a lot of those tensions weren't quite in play here and that i think that is where the disappointment comes in it's a perfectly nice one i think my mom would love it um (laughs) like i can like you can see that um mr malcolm and selena like each other but do they want to fuck? I don't know. I don't know. I really <laughs> don't know. I think they just want to dance, you know, like, and a regular dance. Yeah. Uh, like. <laughs> we're not talking about horizontal dancing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think that's my only thing. I, I am still interested in the next iteration, which is going to be Persuasion mm. on Netflix. Uh, I am right now rereading Persuasion. Let's see if I can get through it before I watch my screener because uh, it's coming out soon. Yeah. And I'm interested. Um, I don't know anything about 
the well, original text, but yeah. I've been, I have been reading the online discourse. So I'm interested. I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah. We, we will. T- I'll talk about it at least in a what's popping, I think. But I think the the discourse mainly is that the script is very modern sounding where and and switches things up, whereas it's still set in Jane Austen's Regency era. So it, it there's a sort of anachronistic tone to it <laughs> that people are having issues with. So I'm trying to read the original, but I'm getting through all of the talk of the peerage and, and lineage and all this <laughs> stuff first, um, which is always the case when it comes to uh, Jane Austen. Like, I do really enjoy her writing, but you kind of ha- have to get through the table setting first yeah. to understand what the stakes are for each of the characters. Who's the lord of what? Yeah. And, Which, and what's the matter names? You know? And, and you know, are they the second daughter? And, and has there been a disappointment <laughs> earlier? And is everything, you know, like dependent on this person making a good marriage? So, mm-hmm. yeah, all that's a yeah. part of what you have to understand. All right. Back to the topic at hand. Is Mr. Malcolm's List good pop? Yes, I do think it's good pop. Just don't expect a Bridgerton hotness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think it's good pop. I think, you know, we didn't really go into the conscious casting of it all because at this point it's kind of, it's not... It's not that it's not interesting or good. It's just it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't. Doesn't. It doesn't seem novel anymore, which I think is a good thing, right? I can watch yeah. this recent drama and be totally immersed, even though not everyone's white, which is good. From David Copperfield to um, Bridgerton to even Ham- like Hamilton, the one that started it all, right? This whole the trend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I don't know if I can go back to watching. I mean, I could probably could watch an all white version, but I'll be thinking, you know, man. I want Dev Patel to play these characters, right? Yeah, well, Dev Patel should always be like the romantic <laughs> lead with the floppy hair. That his his David Copperfield changed a lot of things for me because I don't like David Copperfield uh, story <laughs> as a whole. Yeah. But but yeah, I, I kind of have to agree. I think unless it's very excellently done, like the last Emma was, um, then. I would require something else. If, if you're going to do Jane Austen these days, you better do something different. So. Yeah. And even then, I think the rules of like casting has changed these days. And I think people are more accepting of, especially in the realm of like rom-coms and romances, to do this kind of thing. Because this is how we get Frida Pinto and Zoe Ashton, um, Ashley Park, playing like noble women in Regency England, right? This is how we get Benedict Wong, Dev Patel. This is how we get, you know... We need to write something for Dev Patel and Frida Pinto to like reunite, but in their natural yes. accents for once. Yes, <laughs> that'd be fun. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, I guess that'll do it for our discussion of Mr. Malcolm's List. Um, it's playing in theaters everywhere. You know, it's good counter programming in case you don't want to watch the Thor movie this weekend. Um, <laughs> and it's probably going to end up on streaming at some point. So um, when it does, you know, definitely check it out. It's a good, it's a nice way to spend, you know, a good two hours just watching some fluffy period romance. And with that, uh, Han, if people want to find out more of your thoughts, where can they go? I occasionally tweet at Hanonymous. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at Marvin. You can find our show at Good Pop Club. We are a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Check out our fellow Asian American hosted pods by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. So, yeah, we'll see you all next time on Good Pop. Bye, everybody. Bye.
I'm Phil Yu, and I'm the host of All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. I'm talking to actors, writers, directors, stunt people, background extras. You know, all the Asians on Star Trek. Find out more at alltheasiansonstartrek.com. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Live long and prosper.